The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. What's up, Zoomies? The 10th episode rolls in with Shadow 7's Air Officer Commanding Major Allison Cruz. She was a prior enlisted maintainer, then went through OTS to become an air battle manager. We touch on topics like different tracks of ABM, places you could go, red flag opportunities, and lots more. Tune in for all the details. You're cleared out. Major Cruz, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we got we got a lot to get into today. Um, air battle manager, lots to cover. An extremely new um, job that I have never heard anything about. No, no, no previous exposure. So, do you mind giving some background about yourself, where you're from, what you do, things of that sort? Yes. Yeah, so, a brief background is that I joined in 2002. Uh, enlisted after 9-11 and then went to basic in 2002 and actually started out as an aircraft maintainer. Um, so my background is fully in maintenance almost nine years before I switched over to become an officer by going through OTS and an air battle manager. Mm -hmm. So um, my background is with aircraft. It's with C-130s and helicopters at my first base and then I swapped over to AWACS and then I swapped over to C-130s again. So I got to see air battle managers when I was a maintainer um, at Tinker on AWACS, but I didn't really have a full appreciation of what they did. I just know that they broke the jet and then they landed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we had to fix everything and then take off again, you know, uh, wash and repeat. So, um, but uh, as far as maintainers go, I can say for your maintenance officers that are, that might listen to this by any chance, you've, uh, there's going to be one of you and so many of them. I don't, I only remember one of my maintenance officers because they're always in meetings. Okay. Um, you're mostly just familiar. I mean, from airman to staff sergeant, I was mostly just familiar with the pro soups the most. Uh, and then uh, my, my OIC is actually still one of my mentors today from Tinker. Okay. Uh, he was amazing. Uh, I got out of active duty or I was going to leave active duty. And he said, why, why are you not re-enlisting? And I was like, well, because I just don't think this is for me um, and, and for long term. But I guess, okay, you, so the real reason is because I was gay mm -hmm. and it was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm -hmm. And so I had loved working on airplanes, like absolutely felt like that is my place in life where I needed to be, but I couldn't be me. Yeah. And so he was just like, I don't understand why you're leaving. And I couldn't tell him why, mm -hmm. right? Because... But he invested in me, uh, like any good maintenance officer or leader should do. And he said, all right, I'm going to stay in touch with you. I tell you what, we're going to come up with a plan. You're not get a, getting out of active duty totally. You're going to go guard. And so he helped me figure out how to palace chase and go to the guard so that I didn't have any breaks in service. Mm -hmm. So that I could go back to where I told him I wanted to go back to North Carolina. To well, what was the purpose of no breaks in service? Just for um, retirement or? Yes, for okay. retirement is a lot of advantages to never having a break in service. It also means you never put both feet out the door. You always kept one foot in. Okay. It would He knew by no breaks in service, it would make it easier for me to get on a board at OTS to come back to active duty. Okay. So. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's cool. No. So he did that. He helped me come up with a plan. 
And I went back to North Carolina, and I was in the guard unit there uh, with C-130s and finished my degree and then applied to OTS um, after spending another three and a half, almost four years there. Actually, yeah, definitely four years. Um, so that was awesome. And then, you know, of course, Don't Ask, Don't Tell doesn't exist anymore, and, and he knows, and he's still one of my mentors today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess the point there, <laughs> since not a lot of other people that you know now will live that same story, is just that that officer who just paid attention and asked the extra question like he already knew from my pro super that i had turned down what's called a cjr a career job reservation it's the thing you have to get to re-enlist okay it means like your afsc wants to keep you essentially is how i understood it and so he knew that information and he just went one step farther and asked the question to me otherwise he never would have had any interaction with me um, other than knowing my performance as a maintainer which was awesome mm-hmm. <laughs> i'll just brag yeah the best um so no so that's important that's important if, all of us who are going out there and leading people just taking it one step further to ask another question before somebody walks out the door and to kind of pay attention to if you get the sense that there's like an undercurrent in their life pay attention to that mm-hmm. Well, that's some good insight. So my brother, he's going to basic soon, and he got his job. He's maintenance. Do you mind delving into um, specifically what maintenance enlisted looks like? I'm sure there's a wide array of, or just get, yeah. at least give your experience in it. There is, I'm sure there is a wide array. So my experience being on helicopters and heavies and then a command and control platform, it didn't vary too much across my platforms. Um it was the thing that I loved about it was I, it was it's an always an outside job because if you're flight line maintenance, you can also be back shop. But I dreaded that. I tried to stay on the flight line uh, and I've managed to do so. You're always outside. But that also means if it's snowing or hailing or <laughs> or raining or the middle of the night that you're out there changing that antenna no matter what to mm-hmm. get it done, you know, except for lightning within five because you know how we <laughs> feel about that. Um, but otherwise, it's just a such a, a gritty life but you come to work every day and you get to make stuff new again mm-hmm. and then you get to watch it take off and then you just get to solve problems every time they land and so for me it just kept me it kept me uh, satisfied and like really fulfilled in that in that job you could see the product of your work pretty clearly absolutely okay that is one of the biggest benefits okay is it just felt so gratifying to see every day you were doing something that you could quantify did you is there a certain um component of say the um plane that you worked on specifically and other people would work on another component yeah it does it does work that way there's um there's crew chiefs who kind of take care of every major component on the on the jet but then there's specialists and i was a communication and navigation specialist okay so anything that was you know flight deck avionics crew avionics that related to communication or navigation in any way i did that um you also have we used to call them gac guidance and control troops but i think they call gac something else now but that's like your flight instruments they would um they would take care of those and and make sure calibrations were right and all and readings were right and all that um i took care of uh, navigation instruments, not the r- reading flight. Ah, I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but anyway. And then other specialties would be like 
uh, jet engines uh, or props, it, it, engine troops, period, depending on the platform you're on. Um, E&E, so the electricians for the aircraft, and your crew chiefs, and those are the main ones. Um, you'll have EW troops, so those are electronic warfare troops. If you have an air, if you go to an aircraft that has any like self-protective capabilities mm. for electronic uh, protection, so um, I had that on AWACS, but not on C-130s or anything. Like okay, that, so. it's interesting you say navigation because I just um, interviewed Colonel Dietz, who was a KC-135 navigator at the beginning of his. Um, career and now he's talking about how obsolete navigation really is in, <laughs> in um, uh, aircraft. So it, it, it's funny how it just cut, like comes full circle like that. Yeah. But um, so to get actually into air battle management, um, what does a mission set necessarily look like? Okay, so an air battle manager has core competencies and they're all related around being a command and control expert. Mm -hmm. We um, we solve problems, we up channel solutions and assessments, and then at the forefront of that we are we are pairing shooters to things. So when you as an air battle manager, when you get picked up for that and you go to Tyndall for undergraduate air battle management training, you're focusing on uh, controlling aircraft. So you're gonna learn positive control, which means you're looking at a radar screen and you can actually see returns on that aircraft. And then you're also going to learn procedural control, which is, um, which is sort of like you know where an aircraft is because they're reporting their position based on other known elements, um, grid systems and whatnot. But you you cannot see a radar return for that aircraft. So there's limitations that come with procedural control because on positive control, that literally means I know where you are and there's no shadow of a doubt. Procedural control has a little more gray area. So we're we're directive in, in both sides of those. And where that splits up is like the folks on, that go AWACS, they have an air-to-air -air radar. So they do procedural, I'm sorry, they do positive control. And then on JSTARS, we have an air-to-ground radar. So we do procedural control because we're looking at things moving on the ground, but we are talking to aircraft. Mm -hmm. We just can't see them on our radar system. Um, so you go there and you learned, you learned those types of control and then all the rules about airspace and all the rules about control. And then you also learn about all the airframes. You spend so much time in the vault learning friendly and red capabilities so that you can, you know how to do the integration that's required for a command and control expert. So you study enemy aircraft? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Because you have to know what to pair against it. Yeah. Like one of our core competencies is parachuters. Well, if I don't study enemy capabilities and their assets and know what missiles are on board, um, then I can't actually parachute or can I? Uh -huh. So that's why you spend, I, I think that's the most daunting part about being an air battle manager for a new air battle manager is, oh, I have to know everything about both sides and I have to know how to use my platform and I have to know how to talk on the radio without making a fool of myself mm. um, while conveying all that information. <laughs> uh, so that, it is, I would say it is daunting for sure. But then there's something really cool about being that expert that has that 30,000 foot view and can can see or at least envision the entire battle space and know who's coming to manage what and at what time. Um, I mean, you get to know everything. So like it's intimidating and yet it's exciting that you have that much play in what goes on. That's really interesting. So I guess to kind of make the metaphor, you're it's almost like you're kind of playing chess with 
So you're up above everyone and you're just kind of like playing chess or checkers, pairing, say, a pawn against another pawn or you're putting your queen up against a rook or something. Is that a decent analogy or No, that's far a off? decent analogy. I mean, we do have to make those decisions because we do have that overview of the battle space. Of course, everyone goes out with an ATO and a game plan as to what they're going to do. But your first plan never survives contact with the enemy, right? So mm-hmm. there's always going to be dynamic developments. And then there's a mission commander over what's going on and the and commanders at different level in the air over what's going on so that you can make these decisions to respond to do I match a pawn against a pawn like I have this asset but can I can I re-roll this asset to that mission just Mm -hmm. because I know it pairs better do I have that authority there's going to be an authority matrix that an air battle manager would have to reference and know can I steal this asset to do this job because it is a better pairing okay Um, that's interesting so um we touched on the core competencies before we you mentioned tracks of ABM, so you can go CRC, JSTAR, or AWACS. Can yes. you touch on those three? Yeah, th- that is traditionally what it has been for years. They send the masses to Tinker um, for AWACS, and then CRC, they only send like, um, I want to say 10 to 12 annually from, from the schoolhouse to those, so you can imagine about one a class. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason being is because you're coming out a brand new lieutenant and going to a control and reporting center has a huge enlistment component. Well, we need you to be a seasoned officer at that point uh, to, to for to those effect. leadership purposes, for the leadership yeah. purposes. Exactly. Cause you're going to meet leadership so much earlier and faster. Um, so they don't send as many to the CRC from the schoolhouse. They like him to get like a little more tactical time on them before they send somebody out to a CRC. Uh, it's, it's, Again, they do 10 to 12 annually, so it happens. It's just not the norm. The mm-hmm. norm is you track to a platform, and so and it's mostly AWACS. And then you'll send, um, you know, if, if I had to guess, 12 to 20 annually to JSTARS. That was typically what would happen. But if you're watching the news, they're divesting from JSTARS. They've already retired a certain number of them even this year. So that, that aircraft is going away completely. And new mission sets are going to come online, battle management squadrons, at JSTARS. So air battle managers will still track to Robins, but they won't be flying JSTARS. Okay. Um, it'll just be a new type of mission. Um, I'm not in a position or because, you know, I'm, I've left Robins a year and a half ago to know, like, how quickly that's evolving at Robins. I just know after talking to the assignments manager, that old school thought of, you're going to go CRC, JSTARS, or AWACS has to go away because JSTARS is going away. Mm-hmm. But a new thing is coming up behind it. So can you um, go into the differences between the three, even though maybe one's being phased out? Yeah, so the difference is that AWACS is um, mainly air-to-air. Uh, so they're up there controlling a battle management area and watching where aircraft are, deconflicting them when they have to, and then also bringing aircraft together when they have to, right, in a wartime scenario. So that's their specialty with their radar, and then the specialty of JSTARS with um, their radar is that it's an air-to-ground radar, so we're seeing stuff moving on the ground. So we do tons of overwatch for, we do maritime and overland overwatch. Like SAM sites? Yes, stuff like that, finding, we go on hunts for like scud tells and things like that, Um, troop convoys, tank convoys, um, but then we'll do Overwatch for our own convoys. We work very okay. closely. We even have Army personnel on board because we work that closely with the Army on the ground mm-hmm. to make sure we're providing the over, over 
site that they need. So um, work very closely with the Marines in certain scenarios. And then um, when we go over the water, we're lockstep with the Navy as well. Okay. So can you go into what CRC is, what yes. you do in a CRC? CRC can battle manage procedurally or positively. Well, truth be told, AWACS can too. They go, they go take a BMA. The difference is CRC is uh, a land-based organization. So they are limited by where they can place their radars and radios and the repeaters of those things as far as like what range can they get. Okay. AWACS can literally just go fly to the range that they need. Mm -hmm. So same functionality, just one's land-based and one's uh, airborne. Okay. And so with the evolution of air battle management, there in, in the coming future, the, the evolution of not only having aircraft phased out, but so their um, air battle management is going to be remote for the most part in the future. Is that correct? So if you look into the advanced battle management system, which is being developed right now, um, ABMS, that is one of the lines of effort is to make it command and control something you could do from anywhere um, so that you wouldn't have to have a manned platform in a particular area. That might mean you have to have an unmanned asset in that area, Okay. but it would be equipped with the sensors and radio relay capability where you could still do your job from somewhere else. An air battle manager could. So it would be an RPA, AWACS, basically? I mean, there. I don't think there's like that yes and no. I mean, yes, that's probably what the a, a big vision of it would be, but there's tons of lines of effort to get us to this advanced battle management system. I mean, you're talking about layers upon layers of also getting intel fed in at a level that we can combine it with what we're doing with command and control. Okay. More so than when I'm just on the jet, I have intel feeds and I have contact with intel through chat, but I only have my radar. Whereas if I, this new advanced uh, ABMS, like their goal is for it to be like an internet of things where I'm sitting somewhere and I could have access to multiple Intel feeds and multiple visual or radar feeds okay. overlaid with one another to make a more comprehensive decision. Um, and then, but it's not all going away. Like they're also gonna, uh, divest from the E3, which is the AWACS. And then, but if you've, uh, if you've heard, we're going to buy the E7 from mm -hmm. Australia. So that's a, a platform that's capable of doing both, essentially. Uh, so we're going to upgrade our capability to still do that airborne mission, but we're also on the other side working for, well, how do we move into like using our technology in a better way, uh, in a smarter way where we don't have to be on the battlefield? Would space and satellites come in and play I'm with sure that? I'm sure it does. Okay. Because yeah. I just think if this is my very uneducated mind trying to come to conclusions about things, but say we have an AWACS and it can has this radius, we have a satellite that can see a third of the Earth from its position. But at I don't what know. fidelity? Okay. So that's that's, that's the limiting factor. Yeah. Okay. I see. So um, where can you go as an air battle manager? Whether... Yeah. That be um, station at bases or deployments. Okay. So that gets us back to like thinking in the tracks. Uh, if you go AWACS, the masses go to Tinker, but they also have AWACS in uh, Elmendorf, Alaska, and Kadena Air Base in Japan. Um, if you go JSTARS, the only place there was is, is Robbins. Um, 
are and then if you go battle management squadron like it's moving to now that's looking like robins i don't know where that's going to grow to if you go crc you're talking about luke mountain home that's out you know on the west side of the country um what's that arizona and idaho uh those are the two big ones but then they have crcs all over the world there's uh Svengalum, aviano uh i don't know i think the list goes on and on but for the those being the main ones and then there's another one you can go nato AWACS, and so that's in germany as well okay and we send folks to NATO AWACS annually. Um, so that's an option. And then as far as deployments go, I mean, the, wor- <laughs> the world's kind of your oyster, especially as an air battle manager, because not only could you just go with your platform somewhere, um, you could go to any AOC in the world, Air Operations Center in the world, um, because air battle management functions are in there, or they need liaison officers, and we kind of fill that role sometimes. Or there's a specific exercise going on, and we need to fulfill a role for that. So, I mean, you're talking all the way from NORTHCOM, SOUTHCOM missions here to all over the world. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities. As a young lieutenant, you're going to just track to a platform and do really tactical missions at that point. Your next growth opportunity might get you to an AOC hmm. or something like that. Okay. That's interesting. I I didn't know where exactly they deploy because they obviously need some type of runway to take off. I don't know if big aircraft like an AWACS could just land anywhere. No, no, you're right. They need an airfield. So specifically, I've I've done most of my time in the Middle East at Al Udeed, and uh, AWACS is stationed basically out of Aldafra. Okay. So um, Middle East uh, heavy, and as far as my background, and then anywhere else we've gone. We're just temporary locations, but you use major airfields, just like you're saying. Like, okay. We're not austere. We're not a C-130. <laughs> gotcha. So um, special experiences you've had. You mentioned red flag. Um, what what does that look like in the air battle management field? Yeah, red flags as well as um, weapon school support. So if I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with, if you come in um, – if, if you want to be really tactical, there's a weapon school for most tactical platforms out there. Um, and you've seen the patch on their arm. Is that ringing a bell? I don't it, know no? anything yet. <laughs> okay. Well, it's uh, it's one of those things you can go for. And it, it basically means, like, you are the tactician of tacticians, the expert of experts. But you're going to earn it. Okay. Because weapon school is a six-month-long process. That's yeah, here just, it's really hard. It's very difficult. And it's mostly based at Nellis. Um, there are other communities, like there's, um, uh, we have Major Vaught, and she's a patch, but she did most of her stuff at, at Hurlburt. But okay. for command and control, I'm just always used to going to Nellis for the integration exercises. And, and even those other communities, too, will come to Nellis for integration. And that's not too far off from a red flag event. Like, it's similar. And I just remember as a young lieutenant, you fly in all these local missions in Georgia. You're learning how to do casts. You're learning how to handle dynamic injects for um, airdrops and troops in contact and working with joint forces, but you're simulating it all. Mm-hmm. And then the first time I got to go to Nellis for an, a weapon school integration event, it was like Disneyland times 10 or something, because like all of a sudden you're in the room with all the other tacticians who actually do the thing that you've been simming. You get mm. to have face-to-face conversations with them. You get to mission plan with them. You get to go out the next day and fly the mission with them. And it's no longer a simulated thing on my screen. It's a real thing. I'm really talking to that convoy on the ground. Mm. And then 
the threat replication at Nellis is amazing. So I'm really looking for that scud tell, and I have something on the ground that I can look for. Okay. Um, that's going to mimic it correctly on my radar, as opposed to just simulations that we do when we fly in the local area. So it's just like this eye-opening opportunity to where you get to, I guess you get there and you're like, oh, I get to go rage. I get to go wage war with all these people. And then we get to come back and we get to debrief and we get to talk about how bad we did it. And then we get to do it again the next day and try to do it better. And so it teaches you, not only is it cool because you have access to all that, but like then it teaches you how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like it humbles you so fast to be to realize, oh, my radio limitations on my jet. I can't actually talk to that F-15 when there's a mountain in between us. Because, <laughs> you know, you're simulating it in Georgia, and I could talk to them that many miles away, but I can't when I'm at Nellis because mm-hmm. there's terrain I have to deal with. It teaches you, like, those lessons. Um, but then it also teaches you that, like, wow, when we get together and do this, we all have our own contingencies, and, like, you just don't – you just have to, like, work them together, but – those points of failure could happen at different times, and so the mission's falling apart at different times, but you're watching people adjust to the mission to still get it accomplished, or not, because mm. we debriefed to that, too. Um, so it's just incredible to finally see it all. Do you have a special story that you'd be willing to share from? No, I don't think I can. Oh, oh, that's yeah, fast five. I, I, yeah, I think if I, if I went into too <laughs> that much... That would be an edit button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could just kind of give you the feeling of that. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> so for, for a red flag event, how um, often or what are the opportunities? Like, is that like everyone's going to have one of those? Or are you just top of the class, you're good at your job, and you get sent there? No, they got to send. Um, it, it differs by your platform. But for us, you could always volunteer to go. It, okay. But usually what happens is at a scheduling meeting with the wing, they'll, they'll just say like, hey, which squadron is going to go support uh, integration in December? And if it, your squadron gets it, then you can ask to be on that crew to go. So it, you have to back up and see the big picture scheduling thing. Uh, you know, at a place like JSTARS, we had uh, those two op squadrons. So it was either going to be yours or not yours. Mm-hmm. And then you could ask to go and hope to go. Um, but if you're around long enough, you're going to do all the things. Because mm-hmm. we're constantly on the road, constantly picking up exercises and busy. Gotcha. So um, you worked in Japan or with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to working in a joint environment internationally? Yeah, that was a cool opportunity. That's one of those things that happens after your first assignment. Okay. So you've done a tactical thing with your platform, and then your second assignment can be where you swap platforms or go to another platform for uh, a little bit and then come back to your platform, which is what I did. So I went to an air control squadron in Japan and we don't have any of our, we don't have organic assets. So our whole job was to be a bilateral command and control team um, with the Japanese. Uh, blending the languages, um, blending <laughs> how we do control. That's got to be crazy. Yeah, how we do TTPs, um, but teaching them how we do control, uh, seeing how they do control finding what works for us to fight together because the whole point was the bilateral defense of Japan. Okay. Um, it all had to come back to that mission. So um, we were stationed at Kadena, but we would drive down to Naha, which was like a 45-minute drive, and control aircraft every day. And it would be our folks training, or it would be a bilateral exercise, and we'd be controlling red and blue, and then we'd switch, and we'd do learning with the Japanese. Um, 
but either way it was really neat because we we had to fall into their command and control structure but make it make sense to ours so there were so many charts that it would say like this is their command and control structure and their authority decision matrix and here's ours and we'd always have them side by side so we could figure out well, if a major can make this decision at this level, who in the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force can make that decision so that we would know who to pair with okay. on missions? Um, not only that, but because we were bilateral and we were the only command and control team, there's, uh, there is another one in Misawa, but we would travel around to the other defense sectors of Japan teaching command and control in those facilities, then doing bilateral missions out of those facilities. So... Um, as far as you're asking me, like how the experience was, never thought I would learn, uh, you know, an, a not embarrassingly enough, like a, a good enough amount of Japanese, Japanese. Okay. to survive. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. Is it like, okay, English is a pretty predominant language globally, but you're going to Japan, so you'd expect that you'd be speaking their language, you know what I mean? You would. But we, I was expected to speak more Japanese in public, but when we would go control with the Japanese, they wanted to practice their English. Oh, okay. So like, <laughs> we would do so much more in English. Um, but it was cool because they rope you right into like their traditions um, and how they would celebrate after an exercise was similar to how we would too, but you'd go, to, like, go out to restaurants with them and stuff and, and celebrate the accomplishment. Uh, the culture is amazing. Um, I had a kid there. Um, so I just like, it was a amazing assignment that I would take again in a heartbeat. Okay. Uh, and it was a, it was kind of like a broadening assignment. Cause then I came back to the jet and I, I got back on J stars doing, doing control there and deploying with them. So it was one of those things that you kind of applied for or put in a preference like, oh, I want to go work in Japan in this joint mission. Yeah, it, it came up in a commander meeting that that you're not privy to as okay. a young officer where um, they'll have to do the the PCS moves. And so I can't think of the word for the list that comes out, but uh, it means you're vulnerable to move. And so they'll look at that list and they'll see what's available. It's like a bill. A bill will come out from AFPC and say, we have to fill these slots here. And so then we pay the bill. And so it gets divided up between Tinker and all the other wings, and then you pay the bill. You put an ABM in the slot that you're supposed to get. Okay. So my boss walked up to me, and he was like, hey, do you want to go to Japan? You have, like, an hour to decide. <laughs> and so <laughs> I called my wife, and I said, do you want to move to Japan? And she said, I only have one question. Can we take the dogs? <laughs> and, and I was like. I'll show you how to get to the commander real quick. <laughs> yeah. So I found out that we could take the dogs, and we took the assignment. Yeah. Um. That's sweet. Yeah. I didn't know that's how it works. I, I, in my mind, I think it's like one of those taskers. I don't know if you see cadet emails, but say somebody in the wing sends down this tasker for a volunteer option that, I don't know, Habitat for Humanity. Is that similar at all? Well, I mean, now my vector's new, and so they do it through my vector. Okay. But I have been, I guess, weird enough or lucky enough to where I've just been in the right place at the right time where somebody will be like, hey, do you want this particular assignment? And I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, I do. I want it. Okay. Uh, but then to go back to J-Stars, that was kind of a, I didn't need to apply for that. It just made sense to go back to J-Stars after Japan. Okay. To get recalled on the jet, upgrade to mission crew commander, and just continue what I already knew how to do. Um, I didn't want to switch to AWACS. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay on like the platform that I knew. Um, but yeah, now there's my vector. You fill out stuff in there. It's like base preferences and like more about you. I don't know entirely how it works, so 
you don't want to trust me as the expert <laughs> on that. Um, but you do get a chance to tell your leadership where you would prefer to go for your next assignments. Mm. So are there any misconceptions about ABMs or say things that you think cadets should know about your job? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's a misconception except just a, a amazingly widespread lack of understanding, right? Because mm -hmm. we probably don't do a great job of selling ourselves and it can get real convoluted real quick because you could talk to an ABM who was like, yeah, I spent four years in the AOC in Germany and then talk to another one who spent four years on a jet. You could get 10 different answers from 10 different ABMs, which I think is actually a selling point mm -hmm. because it means that you're not pigeonholed into just one thing as an air battle manager. You're gonna have the opportunity to like branch out and find what might suit your passion and your capabilities better. Like, um, so in the line of misconceptions, there's that, just a misunderstanding. Uh, I would say a, a word of advice to cadets on this is that, yes, you do need to want, you need to have a brain that can organize well, and you need to be committed to studying a lot. And because you are, your credibility as an air battle manager can get, can, can get undermined really fast the moment you walk into a mission planning meeting and you don't know the capabilities that you're supposed to know. You try to pair something you're not supposed to pair, use a platform in a way it's not supposed to be used. Mm. Like you're already walking, there's a hierarchy, right? And pilots are at the top of the hierarchy when you walk into a mission planning room. And so um, at least that's been my experience. And so as an airbound manager, you're already walking in knowing you got wings, but you're a penguin, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm yes. not flying the aircraft. So, or a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to know your stuff. That's where your credibility comes. Okay. So I don't want that to shock anyone who, who goes towards air battle management. Hmm. Um, and then as far as, uh, you didn't ask me this, but I brought it up because an air battle manager is no one thing. Um, niche opportunities like there's different types of weapon schools. Like I went to the Marine Corps weapon school and became a, a weapons and tactics instructor uh, through them. And then there's a joint interface control officer. Uh, that's a program you can go through to become that type of expert, which they only let air battle managers do. But then it means that I get to go work for AFSENT as the JICO for all of AFSENT. And, What's a JICO? Uh, a joint interface control officer. Okay. And it does um, that position, it's, you become the data link expert. So everybody's so used to seeing what's called a common operational picture, which means I don't, I don't look at a map and just see, hey, what's going on in Colorado Springs. I look at a map of the United States and say, I want to know every mission going on in the United States. I want to know what all my aircraft are doing and where they are and when. And that's a common operational picture we can provide using data links. Um, and it gets really nerdy, and I love it. Uh, because not every platform has the same data link capability. We, we transfer a lot of that data from one to another. Um, we report data from another platform in order to get the full picture. But those are all the puzzle pieces that a JICO gets to move around in order to get that common operational picture up to higher headquarters and the generals making the decisions for an entire operation. Mm -hmm. so, that, so my point being, different opportunities that'll come up for air battle managers that aren't anywhere else by that you mean working with the marine corps specifically 
Uh, like the different weapon schools. There's okay. also a Navy weapon school that uh, they'll pick, you know, an ABM or two a year to go to that. How might um, that differ from the regular Air Force weapon school? So that one is every – so the Marine one is shorter. So it'll never be the exact same, right? In the eyes of the Air Force, just because I'm a Marine Corps weapons and tactics instructor, it does not make me a weapons officer in the eyes of the Air Force because they send them to Nellis for a very specific program. What it does make me to the Air Force – is it's the MAGTAF, so um, that's the expert it makes me for the Marines. And the Air Force then just leverages me in any operation that we do with the Marines because now I think, speak, Marine. Okay. Um, and those are the differences. But that's why you can go do these other things because an Air Battle, Air Battle Manager has to have that breadth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have more opportunities. Yeah, it seems like that's a big... It's a motif within the Air Force that, I mean, a, a lot of us don't have majors here that correlate with the job that we're going to do because they want that breadth of knowledge. Yeah. That seems like it's pretty recurring. So. Well, they try to get y'all, you know, the peanut butter spread of all the AFSCs mm -hmm. for all of us so that you can pick our brains. Yeah. I think, are you saying they, that it's not well no i'm no i'm saying like exactly what you're saying oh, okay because um like i i use this uh example in my last episode but um the dean she she was an astro major and then she became a jag so they don't correlate at all she could have been some type of political science major something that is way more fuzzy yeah but i'm sure that I don't know how many times, but an astro background has come into play in helping her solve unique problems gotcha. with that in, uh, different kind of background of knowledge. Yeah. So you're the Marine of, you have that Marine perspective. Slight jarhead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little leather on the neck. I, yeah, and I, I wear it proudly too. Like I wear this patch all the time. Oh, I didn't even see it. What is it? It's the it's got the eagle with the red eye. Oh, okay. But that's um, and it's authorized to wear if you go to any joint weapon school, right? You can wear it. So I can wear my Jico patch or I can wear this one. Okay. Um, but I wear it because it's it's, for me, like that was one of the proudest moments I had was going through school that difficult of a school with like Marines as my peers mm -hmm. and having to learn their language and how they do things. Um, you're proving yourself with them and alongside of them, but also to them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, now you represent the Air Force to them. Yeah. And so it was just this incredible opportunity. And it played right into what was going on in the Pacific with, with everything going on with Indo-PACOM now that was going on when I was in Japan, which is how are we going to operate in the joint environment for the defense of Japan? Guess who's out there kicking doors in? The Marines. Yes. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> It was, um, yeah, it's just really cool. Well, I think that does it for us today. I appreciate you. I really appreciate you coming on again. And, uh, a job that I have actually, well, now I do. Before I had absolutely no um, knowledge of prior. So now I'm at least 40 minutes more educated on hair battle management. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Major Allison Cruz and her experience as an air battle manager. Hopefully this provided a little insight as to what an ABM career could look like. Upcoming episodes will feature an F-15 Eagle pilot, maintenance officers, logisticians, and a few more before the semester closes out. Thanks for listening. Gormat. <laughs>